Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. So welcome back to State of the Arts, a podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to be talking about Kara Walker's installation at the Domino Sugar Factory this summer here in New York City, which got a lot of press, got a lot of press. And it might be something that you actually came across uh, if you were um, looking at Facebook or Twitter or anywhere on social media on Instagram this summer. So uh, we're going to be unpacking some of the controversy around this work, as well as talking about its formal elements just a, two things before we get started. Uh, I can't remember if you, it was just a minute ago, but I can't remember if you said Domino Sugar Factory. Uh, I made the mistake of when I was telling my dad about it, I just said the Domino Factory. And he was like, <laughs> do they make dominoes? Do they sell pizza? So that's just one note of clarification. The other point we just wanted to make before getting started is that there's not really a rating system for art like you find for movies, but if there would be, you would probably classify this work by Kara Walker as R-rated. So if you're looking at images online, just, just beware of that fact. So before we get started talking about the work and what it actually looks like, I want to rewind to our last episode about the Detroit Institute of Arts. One of the big questions about whether or not the DIA should be preserved or I should say rather one of the assumptions uh, of people who are arguing that the DIA needs to be preserved is that it is important to see works of art in person, on site. And the fact is that we have more and more technology now than we ever have before. So there's all of these ways to, to virtually experience art. And of course, we have to imagine that these are only gonna accelerate, right? This technology is only gonna accelerate in the future. So Sarah and I have talked about this, uh, and we both agree that we think it's really important, and I think most art, art historians would agree, um, that it's really important to see a work of art in person, that no matter how good the technology, you're always missing out on some aspect of the experience. And this is true not only for sculpture, but even for uh, ostensibly two-dimensional objects like paintings and photographs, that the, the um, aspect of scale, for example, how large is this object relative to your own body is something that you lose when you just look at it on a computer screen or more and more frequently on a tablet or on your cell phone. So when people at the DIA you know, argue that that museum has to stay intact, they're assuming that even if those works of art are going to be available in high-res digital downloads or in some type of virtual reality environment in the future, that that won't be enough, that there's still something that's lost by not being able to walk into a room and look at these objects around you and feel their presence in some way, you know, smell them, for example. So with the artist Kara Walker, her work is, is typically environmental or her most famous work um, that she came out with in the past few decades is really installation art where she installs these black uh, silhouettes actually uh, on the walls of the space, whether it's a, a gallery or a room in a museum. And so for her, definitely the experience of being in a space, right? The work is indivisible from sort of the architecture of the room that you're viewing it in. So that's very important in general for her work. Um, this work in particular, uh, which we're going to call a subtlety for short, amplifies that experience, the importance of being in, in the presence of these works of art in physical space 
by also being site-specific, meaning that it actually only makes sense in the context of the architecture that it's located in, and that is the Domino Sugar Factory. So um, the full title of this work is A Subtlety, or The Marvelous Sugar Baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. So that's the full title. Um, this is an installation that opened in May and closed on July 6th uh, and saw thousands and thousands uh, of, of people queue up, sometimes waiting for hours at a time just to get in. Since you mentioned we're going to be calling it a subtlety, I just want to say a couple of things about that title, a subtlety. It's historically referring to these little sculptures made out of sugar that originated in the Middle Ages that were things that you would find in uh, aristocratic or, or royal parties. And there were these these uh, confections that, that could be eaten and you would only find in these in these kind of lavish settings. Some historians suggest that they're the precursor to the modern wedding cake. And also it's just interesting that she uses this this historical term for something that is anything but subtle. Yeah. So um, a subtlety is one way that Kara Walker here refers to sugar and the politics as well as the aesthetics of sugar. Um, but also it's about the site, right? So the fact that this is, as the title even indicates, on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. So one of the things that's going to haunt this work is the historical transition that's happened, right, in a neighborhood like Williamsburg, where you see um, a lot of flux happening in terms of the demographics of the neighborhood um, that relate to uh, racial changes in New York, that relate to economic changes in New York, um, and also to the overall sort of larger narrative of the history of industrialization. So um, fun fact, my grandfather was born in Williamsburg in 1921. And when I was graduating college, all of my friends were dying to move to Williamsburg, right? So this is really the place to be. And I told him this and he looked at me and he said, why? He could not fathom why anyone in their right mind, especially somebody who just graduated from college and was was young and starting out and had their whole life ahead of them, would want to live in Williamsburg. The fact that this plant is closing is actually the condition of possibility, to go back to that term I used in the last podcast, I think, maybe, unless we cut it out. Um, that was in the postscript. Oh, it's in the postscript. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so everyone go read the postscript blog. Um, the fact that this, this sugar plant is closing is the condition of possibility for the work, actually. Um, so it does refer to economic history in that way, because the fact that this physical space is actually being demolished to make way for new luxury condos, it's only because of that that Kara Walker was invited in to do something with this space before it's torn down. And of course, the fact that the space will be torn down meant that the work was necessarily going to be not only installation art in the sense that it occupied the whole space and not only site specific in the sense that it referred to the history of this building as a sugar plant, but also ephemeral that it was designed to be destroyed. Um, in fact, one of the really interesting things about the work, and I saw it only very late in its run, was the way in which decay was built into the entire um, the entire installation, right? That the centerpiece of the work, um, I want to get into that a little bit now and actually let you guys know what we're talking about, um, <laughs> was a giant sphinx. And it was uh, sugar packed onto a styrofoam core that made up the structure that was um, about 35 feet high, uh, and took four tons of sugar to make and about 75 feet long. And by the time that I saw this structure, 
the sugar had actually, because it is in a giant warehouse, it's like it has no climate control really, and it's the middle of summer, the sugar had actually started to fall off of the Sphinx. And so the degradation that was a, a product of the environment inside of this warehouse, I think was a wonderful metaphor for the degradations that African-Americans have been subjected to over the past several you know, centuries. Which is also then echoed in the factory itself, which, as you said, was shut down way prior to this work being installed. So you saw the kind of ruinous effects of decay in the space itself. Right. So in terms of what the work is, um, there is the giant sphinx in the middle, and that's what most of the photos um, that you'll find online are going to be of. Um, But there's a lot more going on in the space. Again, Kara Walker is really famous as an installation artist. So the walls, the very walls of the warehouse became part of her work of art and had molasses dripping down the sides. So I'll actually put a photo up on our on our episode blog um, that I took of of the texture of the walls. I mean, they were like these gorgeous monochrome paintings. I'm a sucker for textured monochrome painting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like such a cliche about me. Um, like you can go to any art fair and pick out like that's what Tina likes. If it's textured monochrome, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this gorgeous textured monochrome that dealt in some sense with the history of abstraction. Mm-hmm. And nobody really talks about the use of the walls there. I mean, and at the same time, and this is why Kara Walker is such an incredible artist, it's both formal and political because right. it was this beautiful comment on on the history of abstract art. But at the same time, it's molasses and the molasses runs down the walls like blood. Right. Right. So the horror and part of it is is this this dialogue. Part of the power of the work is the dialogue that that you keep having, you know, internally between being attracted by this beautiful image and by the 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 manufacturing of the sculptures, which I'll talk more about in a second, and the fact that it's, you know, showing such violent things or that it looks like blood running down the walls or whatever, right? That there's something repellent and also something very beautiful. And it's the way that she keeps these two things in tension that makes the work so compelling. And I think that's really interesting, that tie into. Uh, the history of abstraction. That wasn't something that I had ever thought about in connection to this work before. But in terms of a subtlety being this really loaded political work, I mean, and and tying it into the history of abstraction, I mean, that's a, you know, if you think about artists like Jackson Pollock or, or um, Mark Rothko, usually when you hear people talking about them, they're in this this sort of revelatory, emotional, passionate way that is completely separate from any sort of political statement or as a complete formalist statement where it's not about emotionality at all it's just about you know demonstrating the limits of the medium and here we're getting a little bit into like modernist art theory which you know is where I live but um I I don't need to bring you all home with me I guess (laughs) um but yeah no that this is that Sarah makes a good point that abstraction and political art are seen as being intention you know or being sort of mutually opposed and that one of the big problems with abstraction is that it is apolitical and in fact uh, there are certain readings of abstraction that labor to show that there is a politics right. to that and there that is a politics of form. But I think that's probably a discussion for another day. Definitely. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, but it's 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 a great thing to point out that um, she undoes that opposition a little bit and plays with that. So, OK, so we've got this tension between um, beauty and ugliness. We have the molasses running down the walls um, like blood. Of course, sugar itself is doing the same thing, that tension between 
the sweetness that is so compelling and then the addiction that forms and that is ruinous to our bodies mm-hmm. um, and also to our social bodies, the body politic, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it's that quest for sugar that ends up producing like the slave trade, right? Um, so, uh, so we have the walls, uh, we have the giant sphinx in the middle, and then we also have a series of small sculptures of boys that are throughout the entire space. So before you even come to the Sphinx, um, which is this towering like 35 foot tall figure that dominates the room, but is actually set towards the back of the room. And on your way towards the Sphinx, you're, you're in this sort of field littered with these, these small sculptures of boys that are made out of molasses. And again, just like the Sphinx was um, sort of dissolving and falling apart, um, these molasses sculptures are really dissolving. And um, some of them have literally collapsed. They've limbs have fallen off, heads have rolled. Um, they've fallen and toppled over on the floor. And in fact, as she was making them, um, she was having a problem keeping them together. And so some of these boys are holding baskets that would be like filled with fruit, for example. And she put some of the fragments of the boys that fell apart in the baskets of the boys that are standing. So there is sort of a suggestion of this kind of intense violence right mm-hmm. that that it's about sort of how societies eat people or something right. um so the the these small figures themselves are based on tchotchkes these little figurines that she actually found on amazon.com and um they're these sort of romanticized figures of small slave boys that you would have found on the sugar plantations um And she talks in uh, her statements about them, and there is a curatorial statement, which we'll post on her blog, um, how these figures, like so much of her work, are both alluring and and horrifying. And that's something that um, Tina brought up with with the walls, with the molasses going down the walls, that it has this association with, with abstract art in its visual allure, but the connotation of blood makes it also kind of gross. Um, Not to mention the smell, by the way. I know we were just talking about, like, you know, with the DIA, like why it's so important that there's a a physical relationship. And I joked about the smell, but smell's actually a really important part of a subtlety, that you walk in the room and the the molasses just hits you. Right. And it's, you know, normally think of molasses as something sweet that you love to, like, mix into your yogurt or whatever, but it's it's a kind of Mix sugar in your yogurt? Maybe. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. Like putting honey in your yogurt. I guess putting honey in it, yeah. Yeah, you know, if it's unsweetened. Right. Um, don't judge me, Sarah. <laughs> no, I used to I used to put sugar on cornflakes. Basically, any cereal that was healthy, I would put sugar on it. So. Oh, and cornflakes aren't even that healthy. To begin no, with. not really. <laughs> but as opposed to cocoa pebbles, yes. Oh, fair enough. So these boy figures are essentially enlarged versions of these little um, figurines that... Are, are just a popular culture appropriation of something that was really horrifying these that these young children were central parts of um, of sugar production um, and just something that we're not aware of you know we just buy our domino sugar in a in a box or uh, in a bag and you don't see that that production side of it which is really difficult and um, 
yeah. has a long history. And so actually, um, Walker talks explicitly about what you just pointed out, Sarah, that we buy this product in a bag and we have no sense of where it comes from. The same as, you know, the English aristocracy weren't really thinking that hard um, about where it came from. And not only is there, you know, the the question of labor, that it's, you know, forced labor that's producing um, the sugar on these islands in the Caribbean, for example, but also the labor that goes into forming this raw sugar cane or transforming this raw sugar cane into something that is white. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the Western um, art historical tradition, whiteness has a long association with purity, with value, um, with high art. So she actually says, um, this is a quote from Kara Walker, I've been, ba- I've been kind of back and forth with my reverence for sugar. Like how we're all kind of invested in its production without really realizing just what goes into it, how much chemistry goes into extracting whiteness from the sugar cane. So it's uh, this question of producing whiteness out of blackness is both a chemical process that happens with sugar, which is connected to the labor of black people, but also um, it's a it's an aesthetic and formal question and and uh, a social one as well, right? Similar to how there's this long and arduous process of turning raw sugar into bleached white sugar, you see this, these sort of products that attempt to chemically lighten um, one's skin from, from darker tones to lighter tones, with sort of perpetuating this idea that whiter is better, whiter is purer, more socially acceptable. One of the most interesting things about um, the use of sugar in this piece, and especially the the white sugar in the, in the main sphinx um, figure, which we'll come back to, um, is that it draws attention to that long process and, and difficult process of of transforming this dark substance, the raw sugar, into this pure white bleached sugar. So to get back on track with a, a subtlety, there are multiple different components of this work. And this is one of the things that we teach our students um, to do is to, to learn to appreciate and have an eye for how all the different components come together to ultimately create the meaning of the work. So one important thing that contributes to the meaning of a subtlety is its situation in the Domino Sugar Factory. Another important thing that contributes to the meaning of the work is the use of sugar as a material, right, which is a very loaded material to use and also very appropriate referring to the site of the work itself. Um, Did we mention that the sugar was actually donated by Domino? We did not mention that. Yeah, Yeah. the sugar was donated by Domino, all those pounds of it. Um, So uh, another thing we I want to get into a little bit more now is the actual form of the figures, um, which are like most of Kara Walker's works, riffs on um, the stereotypical images of African and African-American people that you find throughout American history that are quite shameful. Um, So the figure in um, in the middle is, like I said, it's based on a sphinx. So Sarah talked about the figurines of the boy, so I'm not going to talk more about that. But the Sphinx in the middle, obviously Sphinx is Egyptian and uh, Egypt is in Africa. Egypt is in Africa. So obviously anybody who's interested in um, finding a, a visual culture um, that can be situated outside of the Western tradition would do well to look to Egypt. And in fact, um, Western art has tried to sort of claim Egypt as its own, but it's very problematic, right? So normally we say Western art sort of starts with Greece. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously, even back then, 
there was, I mean, there was a lot of communication going on between Greece and Egypt, you know, across the Mediterranean, right? So um, these divisions that arise, right, between African art and between Western European art are sort of artificial from the very beginning. Um, Okay, so it's a sphinx. Uh, It's a sphinx-like creature, which is, um, I should point out, uh, not only Egyptian, but also Greek, Mm -hmm. right? It's in the it's in um, the the stories from ancient Greece that you do find these these uh, sphinx who sphinxes 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 I think. okay yeah. you find these sphinxes who pose riddles that must be answered right and so a lot of people have commented upon the fact that just like the sphinx of the ancient world whether it's the Egyptian um, sculptures or the Greek stories um, that this work also poses a riddle to us and we have to sort of figure that out and so it's a very literal manifestation of the idea that that art is not simply something that pleases us that is there for us to devour if you will like a sweet confection Mm -hmm. but it's actually something that can challenge us it's a confection that can poison us from within Mm -hmm. that really broadens our minds opens our horizons and maybe makes us feel a little sick to our stomachs Mm -hmm. so not only is um smell really important to this installation but so is uh your kinesthetic experience of the space and and of the object that you literally cannot see the back of the sphinx from the front 75 feet long right so you literally see this the the front of it and cannot even conceptually imagine what the back of it might look like and if you do imagine it chances are you're going to be surprised when you get around yeah. to the other end it's not exactly what you were expecting um so the fact that it is so large and looms over us is part of its politics right because it's it's very rare that we see a monumental figure celebrating not only a, a person of African descent in America, but also an anonymous person of African descent, right? That this is an enormous statue that celebrates basically a Mamie figure, somebody who, mm-hmm. you know, a, a stereotypical depiction of, um, you know, the, the nurturing mother, right, of Africa, you know, on, an, uh, on a plantation in the South, for example. Think of Aunt Jemima with her, uh, her kerchief on her, on her head, right? It's that kind of, of stereotypical image of the harmless, um, you know, sometimes like literally toothless uh, nanny who mm-hmm. just takes care of us white people, right? Um, who cooks for us and cleans for us, etc. cetera. Uh, here you have a figure who is uh, making an expression that is totally inscrutable. So that's the riddle. She's not here to nurture us. She's not smiling at us. She's not cooking for us. Um, she's minding sort of her own business and staring out impassively and absolutely towering over us. Mm-hmm. So you have, um, just because of the scale itself, a sense that this figure should be celebrated or should be looked up to or that this figure is in a position of power over us. And so that's very disconcerting um, for, I think, some viewers that it's not only an African person, but this anonymous stereotype. And so... Kara Walker actually has um, detractors within the African-American community. Um, Other artists have come forward saying that she shouldn't be monumentalizing and celebrating these, frankly, negative um, stereotypical images of of African and African-American people um, that come out of American history. Um, Not that we shouldn't acknowledge them, but that to to make them monumental and um, as we're going to see in a minute to allow people to come in and take selfies with them, um, you know, and perhaps miss the point of the work is is potentially a problem. Um, All right. So the Sphinx in the front has a sort of cartoonish um, mammy figure uh, uh, look to it. 
Um, the breasts are also quite noticeable, and this is something we don't expect, uh, that we don't associate with the figure of the mammy. Um, so she has uh, naked breasts uh, with noticeable nipples. And so what this has to do, um, or what, the work that this is doing, is presenting that other stereotype of African-American women, um, and frankly also of African-American men, which is the sort of unbridled sexuality, mm-hmm. right? This idea of, of sort of an animalistic sexuality that knows no bounds and cannot be civilized, you know, it's obviously tied up in, in primitivism and, and our expectations, not only of African cultures, but also of other quote unquote primitive cultures around the world. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is exactly the same kind of stuff that Gauguin thought about the, you know, the Polynesians. Right. Um, so incredibly problematic. Um so here you see basically Kara Walker bringing these two stereotypes together, the the black woman as as maid, as caretaker, and the black woman as, you know, um, I guess basically the way I was thinking about this is it's it's Aunt Jemima and Josephine Baker. Yeah. I That's think, what this is. I mean, when when you're describing and thinking about the breasts, you can't if you if you have any familiar familiarity with Josephine Baker, it can't but conjure up that image. Right. So she was a, a famous sort of dancer and entertainer who moved to Paris and, you know, would dance with like, you know, banana peels and stuff like that. So exploiting that western sort of desire for the exotic um, exactly and she became very well known and i think pretty wealthy too right right so perhaps we should be treating some of this with some sense of nuance right is right that, and i guess this is the argument is that kara walker takes these negative stereotypes and she she turns them around and makes them work for her and makes them critical and also has become a very successful and well-renowned artist because of it you know she's got a um you know got a macarthur genius grant at like the age of 27 i yeah. mean you know she's she's a big big player in the contemporary art world very well respected um okay so that's the front of the sculpture um when you walk around the back uh, this is where the images get particularly graphic right so um you see that in the back um she actually is presenting her genitals in again what would be a very sort of stereotypical or what conveys a very stereotypical idea of the animalistic sexuality of um, African Americans or African people. Um, so uh, it's a very sort of you know graphic depiction, um, which is to say just a natural depiction of human female genitalia. Right. Um, and the her buttocks are raised, uplifted in the air as she makes this presentation. So there's. A kind of uneasy contrast, and again, I think so much of Kara Walker's work is successful because it keeps these these opposing ideas in intention um, between the front, right, where she is sort of sexualized with the breast, but also has this facial expression that, you know, it, it, we feel like she is inscrutable and, and perhaps that she's looking down or lording over us, right? And then the back where she seems to be presenting herself for our um, visual delectation. Uh, this is called scopophilia, sort of a love of looking that she's presenting herself to us to consume her visually, if not also the idea of tasting, you know, again, you know, all of this, you know, all of this stuff is made out of sugar, you right. know, so it's literally the sweetness of her flesh that we're being offered, right? Um, so it's a weird tension. It is mm-hmm. a very weird tension. Um, and again, I think it it works because these two halves are so distinct from each other and that experience of walking around the back and being surprised in that way. Um, is really productive. The last issue we want to talk about with uh, the subtlety, now that we've already gone over the, the, the form and the medium and the scale and the color, um, some, and also the, the way that um, the work draws upon a, a broader world of popular visual culture and, and negative stereotypes, 
is the selfies. So this is the big source of controversy around this work. Um, You'd think that, you know, having having a figure having its its rear end raised in the air and having these monumental genitals in people's faces might be the real controversy. But no, that's not really what the big controversy was with this work. Yeah, because I guess we're all, you know, we're, we're all sort of used to seeing at this point, you know, explicit images um, and also images of violence. I mean, that, that scares me more than anything. It's, it's not so much that we're used to the sex. That's maybe a good thing. But the fact that we're so immune to to the violence that, for example, is is enacted by these small boys who are missing limbs that have fallen on the floor and remind us of, you know, um, how children, you know, working plantations could have limbs chopped off. I mean, the violence of that we're also sort of used to, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in fact, we're so used to the sex and the violence of this image that people don't seem to even see it, really. So... What the selfie issue or the selfie debate refers to uh, is the fact that people were encouraged by the organization that sponsored this installation, an organization called Creative Time that does a lot of work with um, public art projects, uh, encouraged people as they walked in to use a hashtag to post photos of the work to make it a kind of interactive thing while also promoting the work of art. So that hashtag was Kara Walker Domino. And you can still go to Instagram. You can still go to Twitter and just look up hashtag Kara Walker Domino to find some of the images that people posted. And you'll notice that while some people, you know, well, pretty much everybody took the standard generic shot of, you know, here's the Sphinx. So you can see the Sphinx. A I walked of, in the entrance. Here it is. Yeah, I looked in the entrance. Here it is. Um, here's the Sphinx. A lot of people took pictures of themselves with the work. And some of these pictures, I mean, first of all, we have to ask, what does it say about someone that they want to be photographed with an enlargement of an image that speaks to so many racial, social, economic, political problems? That are incredibly historically entrenched. Right. So what does it say that you want to take a picture of yourself with that? And then the other problem is the the attitude that some people assume, right? I mean, some people just sort of assume an, a, 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 an expression that is very solemn or straightforward. But other people are um, pretending to squeeze the nipples, sort of like when you look, you know, you make it look like you're holding up the falling leaning tower of Pisa. Mm-hmm. You're not actually telching the sculpture, but you create that illusion. Um, other people pretend to be licking her genitals, um, you know, it, it's just a little disturbing, especially when those people are white. Yeah. Um, there's just a sense that they missed the whole point of this work of art, which was not about creating a gag, um, not about creating a photo op, but about making a sort of political point. And I think the smartest uh, article on this, and there have been quite a few articles we'll post to the episode blog, we'll post links to, but the smartest article point out, pointed out that maybe that's the point of the work, actually, that at the end of the day, the meaning of this work is to make us behave badly in front of it and to have us expose ourselves and expose our lack of sensitivity to the issues that Kara Walker is pointing out. Yeah, just that the these sort of historical stereotypes, the mammy figures, these tchotchkes, these aren't reflective of attitudes that are outdated. These are attitudes that still exist and that you can see manifested in people's experiences of the work. And um, as Tina said, you can go look on Instagram um, and and search for pictures with that hashtag Kara Walker Domino. I actually did that today before we started recording just to see some recent ones that were up. And one that someone had posted was uh, 
it showed a white woman taking a photograph of her son, probably age two or three, uh, in front of the Sphinx with uh, an African-American woman to the left of them kind of looking over it. And the, the, the caption of the person who posted this photo was, you know, something to the effect of this is very telling that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the other criticisms leveled against Kara Walker that has come out, you know, in some of the criticism um, that's been published online about this work is, you know, who is the audience for this work of art? Mm -hmm. You know, and when I went there, I would say that the audience demographically was about split half and half between white and black, um, which, to be totally honest, is a much um, more equal ratio than you find in, for example, the Jeff Koons show that I went to last weekend at the Whitney Right. I mean, that was just at the Met on an on an average day. Yeah. So um, there is a sense that literally just in terms of, you know, the numbers, this work is speaking to the African-American community more than other um, art experiences or, or places to see art in New York City are. There was a critic for The Washington Post who wrote about the fact that when, you know, these like small white children go and like run around the room and play in the work, they inevitably get the molasses that is melting on their clothes, on their feet. And I actually saw kids literally um, stepping into the pools of molasses on purpose. Mm. Um, And so uh, this critic said, you know, this is the scarlet letter. This is a, a visual manifestation of these children's complicity in this system, that they wear that molasses like a scarlet letter, like a mark, right? So maybe that is the ultimate achievement of the work is that it makes us all aware, regardless of our, you know, supposed political leanings or, or, or cultural sensitivities, it makes us all complicit. I mean, the smell of molasses fills our lungs. Um, you do walk away with that mark. And so in a weird way, I think of the selfie as also a kind of scarlet letter where people are, the weird thing is, is that they're not being given the letter, they're voluntarily taking it and, and publicly displaying it. Um, displaying their callousness, for example. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting to think about the work that the what the work accomplishes is making people sort of mark themselves, right? Um, so, and I, I do want to close by just pointing out that this phenomenon of the selfie, uh, while there's a very you know specific uh, political problem here and, and also a, a, a racial problem. Maybe also a gender problem, um, although I think the, undoubtedly a gender problem. Okay, a gender problem as well. Um, that this the rise of the selfie speaks to I think a seismic shift in in museum going culture, in gallery going culture, in the culture of the visual arts. Right, that it used to be that you went to a museum to get away from everyday life and to uh, immerse yourself. That art takes you out of everyday life and out of your your everyday troubles and your everyday surroundings. And of course, our everyday surroundings now is our cell phones. The fact that we're all constantly glued. I mean, endless cartoons, right? Or like people just walking around and bumping into each other and bumping into things. And, you know, I've definitely missed my train station because I was so engrossed in my cell phone, um, which is embarrassing, but I admit it. Um, And now instead of using art as a way to escape that, we seem to be taking that to the art world. And museums are actually courting that. They're encouraging people to you know, like Creative Time did, they're encouraging people to post their images online to use the museum's own hashtags. Um, There's even recently there was the hashtag museum selfie and like you could win prizes for the best museum, the best museum selfie. Right. And so, I mean, if we want to be really cynical, we'll say, look, there's an economic reason for this. And that's that 
because of the current recession, museums have seen their budgets shrink, both because of uh, a shrinking of government support and government funding, and also because of a shrinking of support from private donors, that everyone's feeling the pinch, um, governments and, and wealthy individuals alike. And so these museums are struggling to stay relevant to their audiences, also because of competition from other kinds of visual culture, um, and not only to stay relevant, but to grow their audience. So, um, you know, how do museums get people interested? Well, what are people interested in? People like taking selfies. Mm-hmm. So they promote that selfie culture. And I think um, I think if I can speak for Sarah as well for a minute, um, this concerns us because the emphasis now is on your own relationship to the work um as a very superficial kind of relationship it's Mm -hmm. like i was here here i am in the same frame as this work rather than the emphasis being on looking at the work without you in the frame and actually seeing the work for what it is and trying to understand what it's doing and what it's saying to you um so in other words it the rise of the selfie is inversely related to the attention that you're paying to the art itself and to your your understanding yeah and i think I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to mark the fact that you saw a work for your own remembrance or or whatever. But when marking your having been in front of the work takes the place of actually experiencing the work, I mean, that's just one one problem with this issue, besides the fact that it's very distracting for other people who are trying to look at the works themselves. Yeah, totally agree. So, um... That's it for Kara Walker and a subtlety. Uh, we, we hope that we've charted some of the, the issues of this work and also helped you look at it and appreciate it a little bit more, even if you couldn't be there. Um, now you know what some of the, the brouhaha was about. It was definitely a really powerful and compelling work um, that speaks to a lot of issues that are um, ongoing in our culture today. So if you want to check out photos of a subtlety, we will have uh, our own photos and also links uh, to articles that have photos on our website, arthistory.today. Look for our episode blog on the homepage there. And you can also find us on Twitter. Tweet out your responses to us. We'd love to hear it at arthisttoday. Or you can give us feedback on Facebook, facebook.com slash arthistorytoday. Today.